Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Open City Podcast, a show about the past, present and future of London. It features new stories about the city and fresh perspectives on the challenges and opportunities we face together. But if you go around the corner into St John's Wood or to Mayfair, you, you see these luxury, like, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like 10, 11 million, 12, 13, 14, 15 million pound houses. Growing up in, in central London, seeing these huge buildings all around you, yeah? You, you see them being built year on year, um, bigger, more luxurious. You can't even imagine living there. And as a young person, we, we grow up seeing these things next door to us and it creates that division in society that we don't actually need. It, it does hurt sometimes, like it genuinely hurts. You grow up thinking, wait a minute, and this is how I, I grew up thinking, I actually want to make a change. I, I, don't, I don't like what I see. Because I absolutely 100% agree that young people should have a stake in their neighbourhoods and in kind of what happens in their neighbourhoods. But I don't believe that a lot of these consultation processes create a stake in anything. You know, they, they create a stake in having maybe your voice heard within an hour-long session, you know, in a development process. I don't think that is a stake. I, I think that's not even close to being a stake. You know, you know, it's it's pretty minimal. Because this is the problem. If we're not with young people, if we're not working with them and engaging with them and having to talk to them, then we're never going to hear their voices. We only hear our own children's voices and we have a very different attitude towards our own children. It's no secret the young people are currently shut out of the conversation about the future of cities with almost no say in planning, development or architecture. In fact, new research by property developers Grosvenor reveals that 89% of people aged 16 to 18 have never been asked about their opinion on the future of their neighbourhood and just 8% have joined a public consultation. Typically, built environment plans are presented to the public for comment once they're pretty fairly advanced. And sometimes people form their very first opinion of a new building or public space only once it's already been built. At no stage is there a specific process to engage young people. So it's little wonder many young people feel frozen out or left behind with the pace of change. I'm Zoe Cave, this is the Open City Podcast, and today we ask what power would, could and should young people have in the planning process? Hi, 
Hi, Merlin. Hi, Zoe. So cities are changing all the time, and at least in the UK, that's meant to be a democratic process. In theory, anyone can propose any new building anywhere in London or the country. That's called making a planning application. That application goes to the local city or borough council who are elected to represent the views of the people who live in that area. If they like your proposed building, then you get planning permission. You can go ahead and build it. Sounds simple. Well, actually, it gets very complicated with all manner of laws and processes, conservation areas, regional plans and so on. Some planning applications are so complicated that it can take years to get a decision on whether they go ahead. But one thing that is always the same is that whenever a planning application is made, local residents have the right to make comments on the proposal. Like, this is a very bad idea. Please don't give these guys permission to build this building. Yes, or this is an awesome idea. Please, please say yes to this building. Okay, got it. So very democratic. And of course, the council itself are elected. So not only do local people get a say on planning applications, they also theoretically vote out the council if they thought they were making bad decisions. Right, exactly. Except in practice, this whole democratic planning system falls apart when it comes to young people. Young people can't vote in Britain. They can't vote in elections for the government, but they also can't vote in local elections. So that means young people don't really have any power to talk their councils out of making decisions that could seriously affect them. Because they can't say, if you knock our school down, we'll vote you out because they're not allowed to vote in the first place. Exactly. But maybe even more of a problem is that at the moment, the only real ways that citizens can get a say in planning applications are actually quite old fashioned. It's things like turning up to a big consultation meeting in a town hall with lots of other people and making a big speech or writing lots of letters to the council. These are not necessarily the most engaging processes for young people who are already often marginalised. Yeah, and I, I see those planning notices on sheets of paper, like sellotape to lampposts, and I do wonder, is is it really the best way to engage a broad audience in conversations about the future of the city? You know, there aren't any pictures, it's these like tiny A4 sheets. It often feels, I mean, to me at least, like some of these companies who are applying for planning permission are really doing the bare minimum to engage the public, let alone engage hard-to-reach young people. And this is really where our curtain opens, because there are people trying to improve things, to make sure young people have a meaningful voice in the planning system. Grosvenor, for example, who are a property development company in the West End of London, have created a toolkit, like an activity pack specifically for developers and councillors who want to engage young people with planning applications more effectively. Today on the show, we've talked to a bunch of people about how children and teenagers could have a more meaningful voice in the planning process. My name's Councillor Hamza Tozal. I'm a councillor in the city of Westminster. Well, initially, anyway, I was elected as the youngest ever councillor in Westminster. It's a lot of responsibility, don't get me wrong. It is tricky. It is really demanding. It's really busy. But I think the gratification you get from, from helping people when they come to your surgeries, she really feel, wait a minute, I've actually made a little bit of a change. Hamza is a councillor in Westminster. Westminster is a very interesting part of London because on the one hand, it has Parliament in it, Oxford Street and some very well-to-do areas. But it also has some of the most deprived wards in the country. One of these is Church Street, which is where Hamza was elected to represent. What's amazing about Hamza is that he got elected when he was still a teenager, which pretty much never happens anywhere in London or the country. So I was elected when I was 18, which is, well, you can't get elected younger than that. It's, it's, you have to be 18 to stand and to vote. But a majority of the council, I would say, are well into their 50s, 60s, some even older into their 70s. Um, unfortunately, young people don't have a sort of a direct pathway or a direct way to actually get involved in the planning um, procedures that, that be, basically. 
That certainly rings true for me. When I was growing up in London, I didn't really feel like I had any way to get involved in the way my neighbourhood was changing. I grew up in Clapham Junction in the 1990s, and at the time, London was ongoing, undergoing a massive change in fortunes, and it was becoming a lot more popular as a place to live. House prices were going up massively, um, and that was certainly was a process of change that I felt very frozen out of as a young person. I couldn't afford to buy a house, obviously. I had no idea really what that meant anyway, and I had certainly a strong feeling I wouldn't be able to afford one of these houses uh, that was surrounding me and suddenly very valuable. Um, I think a lot of maybe other young people going through it at the same time probably felt the same way. The situation for young people hasn't changed a lot, so there's always that sense of kind of isolation and the things you're bothered about are, are transport and being able to get around and there being anything to do and any kind of facilities. That's Matt Bell. He's Director of Corporate Affairs at Grosvenor. I couldn't have conceived of anybody asking my opinion about what went on or what was going to get built, um, and I don't think much has changed there. For young people, there's a sense of unfairness that what the way the world kind of is mapped out isn't actually for them, and I certainly felt like that when I was younger. And that's Dinah Bornat of ZCD Architects. They've been working with Matt Bell on his youth engagement toolkit. Um, these spaces that I couldn't get to, places that I couldn't enjoy, they weren't really for me. And I, d I don't think that's changed. I think our attitude towards young people has, you know, uh, it, it is probably the same or got worse. And so I think I think it is it is problematic. And and that drives why we don't um, involve them in the change around their their, their neighbourhood. A 15 or 16 year old who's just finished GCSEs or starting the A levels is really going to struggle to sort of maybe come at six or seven or eight at night to City Hall and sit down and watch a planning committee that goes on for a couple of hours and maybe have a two-minute slot <laughs> at the end <laughs> when, when the decision's more or less made um, to take part and actually tell, um, tell us their views. But I suppose my issue with those kinds of modes of engagement is is that the, the potential expertise that those young people have is not actually being tapped into. That's Lee Ivett. He's based in Scotland and has done an enormous amount of projects working with young people and often marginalised groups in Glasgow and elsewhere. And a lot of the time, we're misunderstanding actually what the true value of their participation in a process is, putting, putting young people in, in a situation that they shouldn't be in. I think there was an application for a mosque in a Trocadero or something like that. Um, but a lot of the comments were basically just Islamophobic and racist. It was like there was nothing else, it was pure racism. And the council really struggled to keep up in removing those comments because those comments aren't meant to influence the councillors making a decision. Yet, if there's a councillor who maybe is in a bit of a tricky ward and they're thinking, wait a minute, some of these people are my voters. Should I give them a little bit of a listen, even though I know they're being completely racist? Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's going to help me in the long term in terms of getting elected. If a young person goes online and the first thing they see is like racist and discriminatory comments, they're not really going to want to probably get involved. They're probably going to think, oh, there's a horrible little forum, like a Reddit forum or something like that, where they don't really want to take part in. Yeah, if, if, if you're basically increasing someone's empowerment in a system that's actually fundamentally disempowering, then it, it doesn't, in the long term, necessarily matter. So I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that there should be a stake in in um, in what happens uh, in in, in the environment in which you live and, and inhabit, work in, play in or whatever, no matter how old you are. And I do believe the main issue is actually the kind of total detachment in 
a true form of participatory democracy. Because they can't vote, because they can't have a physical say in who represents them, they'll never get proper representation, no matter how much they try. OK, so I'm getting a sense that it's not just that young people aren't involved in the planning process, but that the process itself could be improved in a whole bunch of ways. Right. The big question is, what counts as a stake? Is being permitted to put a comment on an online forum full of racist trolls a stake? Probably not. But I guess when most people think about engaging children in architecture, they probably think about asking kids to design a mural or asking kids what colour should their new classroom be. Is that enough of a stake? Could we go further? What, what we see today with that sort of tokenistic, oh, you can choose the colour of the building or you can create this new mural or you can, I don't know, choose choose the surface you want on the sports pitch. Do you want it to be a f- AstroTurf or do you want it to be a basketball? <laughs> it's like these little little things that are thrown around at young people and developers really pat themselves on the back and councils as well and they applaud themselves for engaging with young people is, is a bit pointless um, in the sense that it doesn't give them real power and real change. It's sort of, it's all right asking a five-year-old what colour do you want in the building? But there's no... There's no saying that a 15 or 16-year-old can't give you more detailed feedback and more detailed improvements on what they want to see. My, my judgment on a kind of participatory, you know, arts practice, installation practice, and you know, young people participating in making public art, drawing murals, putting paint on a wall, these things is 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 dependent on, I think, actually the language that is being used to describe the impact of that. Because I have no issue with letting kids splatter paint on walls or draw on walls or create stuff. But it's like when that gets dressed up in the language of some kind of transformative profundity, you know, or that, that it is, is this kind of total game-changing process that is going to guarantee the future of these children's lives or the future of this particular place or the future of this particular site. It's like a fun way to spend a few hours. And just being honest about it at that level is okay with me well so i don't have a problem with painting a mural um with primary school age children to give them some kind of stake in the process and if the if the price of that is you know a hoarding on a construction site that's fine but the real game is actually um it's about talking to to young adults and giving them some kind of um a sense that they've got a stake you know that they can make a change I guess the things that frustrate me most is when people kind of go, right, young people, I've got that. I must answer that question. What do I do? And they either go kind of springy chicken, you know, a little bit of play kit in the corner, or they go, actually, so it's a kind of, it's a cage um, with some hoops on the edge of the estate. You know, thank God, job done. I just think we aren't as creative as we could be. Um, And by speaking to young people and getting them involved in all types of processes, especially the planning process, we can make things that are going to benefit them a bit more in the future. I'd certainly say that when I lived in Battersea in the 90s, the big change was like loads of wine bars and like this kind of infrastructure that suited that kind of uplift of young professionals coming into the area. But there was no new infrastructure for people of my age in in that sense, that kind of social infrastructure. But here I live in Tooting now. And um, again, like when people talk about Tooting in the streets, oh yeah, Tooting's really coming up. We've got all these new cool bars and restaurants. But they don't say stuff like, oh, we've got this new nursery or we've got this new facility or we've got this new place where 
where the teenagers can go. So in a way, it is interesting that in our sort of standard ideas about what's advancing London, we don't always think about that youth infrastructure. Absolutely. I think young people are seen as a problem, aren't they? They're seen as a... They're, they're often talked about in development terms as they'll be causing a problem, antisocial behaviour in the same sentence or teenagers hanging around. And, and then you're already on the wrong foot, aren't you? They're hanging outside the shop because there's nothing better to do. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, one of the great tensions that we have at the moment is what's happened to youth services in the last 10 years. There's no more youth guards, there's no more youth provision. There's absolutely nothing left, basically, for a lot of young people. A lot of public services have been hit hard. There's not many that have been hit harder than youth services. Oh. We find that the way that young people hang around in groups is sort of threatening and we call them gangs and stuff. But you only have to stop and remember what you were like when you were that age and how your friendship groups were formed and where you wanted to be. They're not doing anything bad. They're just being young people. As an architect, how do you think we ended up in this situation? I think the, I think the simple answer is that we don't work with young people. In, in our daily lives. We don't come into contact with them. So as a minority group, we don't see them on our own terms as well. So the reason that's the reason. The reason is we, I think, the simple reason is we don't come into contact with them. Having worked in the architectural field as a journalist and obviously discussing a lot with campaign groups and activists and people who oppose developments, you do get a feeling that maybe some age groups are overrepresented. You mean older people get more of a say? Exactly. Older people are more likely to read that notice on the lamppost. They're more likely to have a free evening to turn up to a consultation meeting. They're more likely to join or start a campaign to challenge a development. That's all great in many ways, but it does make you wonder whether developers like Matt are spending too much time talking to one group of people in the community, so only getting one kind of feedback. Developers always find themselves stuck and having the wrong conversation, so... Um, of course, you should talk to everybody, but young people often, in my experience, so they're amazing connectors and they're amazing agents of change. So they suddenly broaden the conversation out massively and they'll create intergenerational conversations, which are much more productive. Well, most of the time, developers are talking to people who are generally older, opposed to what they want to do, who've got something to lose. When you're talking to young people, they've got everything to gain. The dynamic of the conversation is totally different. So adults behave much better when young people are around and you find yourself getting into a much more creative, um, constructive discussion. So, Matt, with this, possibly, is there a risk that maybe by focusing more on young people, we might lose some of that insight of the older person who's maybe lived in the neighbourhood for much, much longer? Well, what you find when you work with young people is that they know their neighbourhood inside out. It's, so they are masters of kind of the streets and the blocks and the parks they, they they know their world better than anyone else. The same way, I don't know, um, a builder knows knows his little world better than anyone else, and uh, someone who does podcasts knows their world better than anyone else. Sort of thing. It's they are essentially experts in in their world. The the kind of granular insight you get from them is amazing, and there's a there's a thing about their lived experience, you know. So it it takes you out of the realm of theory and stats and analysis into what it's actually like to live there the kind of places they'll go to. So young people walk around with an incredible antennae, especially if you're doing regen, then that ability to talk to young people gives you a sense of what a neighbourhood's really like deep down. So, for example, you might be in a park and they're, and they're showing you the space and why it works for them. And one of the things they're saying to you is, look, there's a community centre here 
where the council um, officers work and that's why I feel quite safe. Our job, I think, as architects is to try and understand how they're using space and what's influencing their use of space. Rather than like kind of asking young people what they want, you know, what you, you, you need to, to be doing is getting into a kind of analysis of their behaviour within a place um, and starting a kind of open and frank discussion about that, that, that identifies need in its truest sense. It's through those conversations that they'll reveal that to you. And I think the, the lived experience are kind of like, you know, the day-to-day use of that space is the key to it, not the do you like it or don't you like it. Do you see what I mean? Because the, that, that suggests a kind of an aesthetic judgment. Quite often what happens is people just go into a situation of engagement and just don't really get any further than asking what people want. Critical inquiry is is kind of left at the door. The neighbourhoods I've worked in, for example, when you ask people what they want, it was just immediately we need more stuff for the kids or we need more playgrounds, five-a-side football pitches. In many cases, all of this stuff did actually exist within the neighbourhoods that I was working in. And, and the issue was really about accessibility and ownership, not not whether this stuff was was there. But what would happen is all of a sudden, because people are saying they, they want this new stuff, money is then being used to kind of create new stuff because new stuff looks like progress, you know, and spending money looks like progress. So I feel like I'm getting a sense of why this toolkit is needed. It's like even the people who aren't trying to pay attention to the needs of young people are getting it wrong because the ways they are engaging with those people are not leading to considered conclusions but I'm still not entirely clear what the toolkit actually is. Well, Hamza can handle that question. Essentially what the toolkit is, it's a way, it's it's sort of, how should I put it? It's just a way for youth workers as well as developers to work alongside each other to actually engage with young people and get their opinions. Um, And there's lots of different sort of stages of it, there's different pages, different slides, different activities that young people have to do that maybe previously weren't done. And what it does that I think is great is instead of a developer sort of backing out and saying, oh, I don't know how to engage young people, I don't know what to do, Um, I have no clue how to work with young people, what it does essentially is say, wait a minute, this is a guide, this is 101, basically. If if We're giving you a way to actually engage young people so that the excuses aren't there anymore. For me, the dream would be to have something like this that's compulsory, like legally it's sort of enforced any developer has to engage with a certain group of young people and the toolkit is probably maybe a national thing which is out there which developers can use so why didn't uh developers listen to young people before you just think they just didn't think it was just just never dawned on them i think they're too scared to approach young people directly especially in the states um they see young people as this sort of oh they're dangerous they're going to do something to me sort of thing um yeah, developers need to just be a bit brave in a sense and just go out there. Young people, they want to be doing their own thing, right? So you're you're coming along with this toolkit and these workshops and so on. How do you actually get them involved? You know, what kind of support do they need to make them give you their time? The most powerful thing that you can do is get the developer and the team in the room listening to what they're saying, because at least then those conversations would start. I think it's literally going to the sites you're going to build in with maybe a youth worker who knows the area quite well and someone who's maybe quite high up in the process, someone who can actually make decisions instead of someone who maybe is just there to take notes sort of thing. It's someone who 
can actually go back to the office the next day and say, this is going to change, we're going to add this in or this element's going to be um, put in. Well, I was going to say, those moments when the developer's there with you and they say, oh, I see, it's that. Well, of course we can do that. That's easy. When I was growing up, we had the um, EMA Educational Maintenance Allowance and effectively it was a weekly payment that allowed people to do, uh, young people to do A-levels, to go to, to sixth form college and it would sort of pay for your travel and lunch and so on. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore. But I think certainly in my experience and for many of my friends when I was growing up, it was that that really allowed us to do A-levels but also to do all these other kind of civic things that went with being part of a sixth form, that kind of civic role. I mean, do you think... Do you think both public and private clients, people building, changing our built environment in London, should be a bit more bold to just to give cash to young people for when they're giving them their time? I completely. So paying young people to get involved in this kind of thing, for my money, is completely fine. You know, our planning application, the place that we make, will be literally better because of the expertise and insight that you can bring than what is the problem in paying them the living wage for two hours a week for five weeks? in a scheme which might cost you, what, tens, hundreds of millions? Um, there's nothing better than speaking to the young people directly and saying to them, cool, tell me your opinions. If we want you to be a consultant sort of thing to us, pay you for your time, no problem, because um, it will cost pennies <laughs> in, in comparison to the whole projects. Um, and yeah, why not give, give a young person some employment, help them out, let their opinions influence your ideas? The, the idea that you have kind of put young people in a position where they're serving us as consultants or serving for free, you know, without getting paid for it, you know, getting paid for it as well, isn't good. You know, I mean, I still believe that we are in service to those people, you know, not, not the other way around. So what I'm interested in is a dialogue where they are asking critical questions of us, not us asking critical questions of them. Turning the client relationship on its head so you get the developer and designer pitching to the young people who are the client and giving them the power to say, well, yeah, no, actually that does make sense, or perhaps no, it doesn't. What is amazing on a very practical level is that young people, they kind of bring a bit of joy into planning. Absolutely. I mean, certainly you get the impression when you when you read about, say, a planning application for a skyscraper and you hear about so many documents, so many hundreds, if not thousands of pages of different documents being submitted. You could imagine it looks so boring, no one would ever read it. A, a fascinating, really fun youth engagement report that does give some money to youth, young people for taking part is certainly something that would make this whole process a lot less nonsensical. If every planning committee just routinely asked about whether young people have been involved, that would be an enormous game changer. We need to reset expectations of who's been a part of the conversation. So there's, but there's one point, though, because councils are under enormous pressure right now in terms of resources, being huge cuts. You know, why, why should planning officers prioritise this approach? You know, why, should they, why should they bother? What's in it for them? It's pretty much the law. Young people have a right to be equally involved, and that's enshrined in the 2010 Equality Act. And I think they also feel quite frustrated at never being involved or invited into the discussion about what gets built. So in our, in our survey, in our research, only 11% of them said they'd ever been asked their opinion. I sometimes hear adults going, well, they're not really interested, are they? Actually, 82% of the people here said they wanted to be involved in cities, towns, countryside, different socioeconomic groups. You get that same sense of very actively engaged, really frustrated and never been asked, 
and absolutely want to be part of it. So you've got the enormous willingness to engage, but then sort of hit, hitting a hitting a dead end. Yeah. So the I mean the up the up the upside from that research is you suddenly think, okay, so um, we've got a group of people there who are engaged, who do want to be part of it. All we really need to do is to create the mechanism. So Grosvenor launched a community charter early this year called Positive Space. So it was us trying to set out how we want to engage with communities. You know, so we do a lot of development, we do a lot of management of different neighbourhoods. And it was Grosvenor saying, look, um, this is how we're going to try and do it. And one of the principles in it is about listening first and trying to broaden the conversation. So actually going to people and, and not talking, just in a way kind of shutting up and listening and trying to do that with a much broader group of people. Our heartland is in Westminster, really, as a business, and there's 71,000 young people there. So part of the question for a company like us is, is how do we involve them in a, you know, in a conversation about the future of Belgravia or the West End, for example? Yeah, I like this emphasis on listening. Rather than rushing in, asking predetermined questions and making seductive presentations and consultation meetings, it's an approach that relies on careful and respectful listening, trying to understand the bigger picture through the eyes of the community you're working with. Listening to Matt there it sounds kind of obvious, but it is remarkable how little that happens. Yeah, and it feels like they're trying to go beyond consultation. You know, like when you're consulting someone, you've already got a big idea in mind and you're basically just asking someone for their opinion on it. And how, you know, however engaging that conversation is, it is ultimately never going to be more than a reaction to your big ideas. Whereas this emphasis on listening first does suggest a totally different approach. There isn't consultation, but it isn't consultation at all, but is more substantial. I think the youth engagement toolkit that Grosvenor and ZCD have made isn't trying to rewrite the planning process entirely, but maybe it is an exciting step in that direction. Consultation processes are definitely better than nothing, but the real question is, what could come next? One of the issues with this kind of conversation around engaging young people in design or the built environment and consulting with them, because at the moment it kind of sits between well, it sits within kind of one of two extreme scenarios, you know, one where they're listened to because they're deemed to be disruptive or they're kind of listened to in quite a patronising, cynical way rather than there being kind of systems of democratic forms of behaviour that allow, you know, a, a con- continuous engagement within a conversation around what, what a neighbourhood provides for young people or what a city provides for young people or what a place provides for young people. Um, and, and that's really what we need to create, you know, is that actually a kind of th- these kinds of consultation processes are, are a very, 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 very weak substitute for true agency, responsibility and ownership. Yeah, possibly the problem here is the fact that young people can't vote. They can't buy a home. They can't drive a car. Is this why they're frozen out of all that kind of standard local authority thinking? If the vote was given to young people at an earlier age, then I think that would hugely change things because that um, disproportionality is, is, is huge, I think. So imagine you're a planning, you're a member of a planning committee, you're an elected politician, right? And you've got to decide whether or not to approve something or whether or not to ask for changes on something that's proposed. And there's a good chance you could get voted out because young people, how's that going to change your behaviour? Well, it's a really good question, isn't it? So, so uh, who who knows? I think that's what we'd have to find out if we if we if we gave them that chance and those conversations happened. 
I mean, this is a conversation about you know, young young people's participation in in a kind of development and the built environment, but like adults don't <laughs> you know have, have much say in that either, to be honest. What's that thing called in Scotland that I live in? Devolution. That's it. I'm interested in. <laughs> I'm, inter- I'm interested in you know a devolution of power to neighborhood to, to neighborhood levels. You know, and properly. You know that actually people and places and neighborhoods kind of imbue people with some power and responsibility and can influence and inform that. And and that is systemic. It's not reactive. You know, it's not. Um, it's not. Oh, every twenty years we need now to consult people because. The places they live in are, you know, totally and utterly gubbed. You know, it's like putting in place a more agile and responsive form of democracy that comes with, you know, like I say, agency, responsibility, ownership, action. And and then I don't think it's that hard for young people to kind of be, be intrinsically a part of that that system. If we gave young people the vote, those councillors, rather than just being worried about the risks, the fact that their political activists on the ground might give them a grilling the next time they see them, that they might lose a few votes, that they might get in trouble with the local civic society, that instead they're going to have a whole different approach and it's all going to be about listening and it's going to be about really actually trying to understand those places on the micro level. Yeah, none of us are young people. So like none of us in the built environment are, are, are under 18. So you have to go out and listen to them. You have to. That's what's really good about, about them as a group. It's, it has to be about listening. It can't be our own kind of version of the world. I'm not arguing against people participating in decision-making around their neighbourhoods and the things that affect their lives. I'm, I'm just not... You know, I, don't, I don't see uh, many examples of your neighborhood or community consultation processes that are, you know, are actually true, you know, creating a true form of participation that, you know, really has or will have a kind of long-term value. Still for me, most of what I see feels quite tokenistic and quite cynical, even when it's really well-meaning and even when it's being done by good people and even when everyone is going into it with the right intentions, you know, um, I, I, I kind of, I feel that the things that need to be kind of systemically fixed um, are a little bit larger and a little bit more complex and being ignored, really. And this is the most important thing. It's acting on what young people say um, and not making it seem as if their ideas are disposable. It might cause some losses in your financial plans, but if that brings the support of the whole community around you and the whole support of all the young people, then why not? Let's say young people do get more power in the planning process. Let's say this toolkit is a huge success and planners, developers and architects all start to create proposals that are far more responsive to the input of younger people. What would that actually mean for our cities? If we had to guess, what might those young people want more of in our cities? No, it's a really good question. I think it's about equity. That's the one thing that comes across loud and clear. They are absolutely brilliant at just getting straight to the point on what's fair and what isn't. And they can see that from their own point of view, also from others. They're extremely empathetic. They will look at a space and say, hang on a minute, and if you live here, you don't get the same offer that these guys get over here. That's not fair. And, and you kind of, you know, that, that's a really good challenge back to the developer. And you sort of like, you, what, what do these guys have? And they're like, 
fair point you know because actually that that sense that well they might be paying more or uh, we couldn't really provide it there because there wasn't enough space to have somebody just go well that's not fair is is very powerful and i think i think equity and kind of a, a rebalancing of um resources would definitely come out of more of young people being more involved you talk to a young person growing up and they have the ambitions to own their own home they have the ambitions to get a decent job um maybe to get married or something or settle down or just have a normal a normal life basically um whereas now it's seen as being special or lucky it's like if you if you got if you got a job oh you're lucky especially from the estate i've grown up in it's like oh you've you've done well for yourself you have a normal job since when is that a privilege like when is since when did that change or when where did things go wrong um for for young people for the country but for young people especially the, the questions about you know, what people want, whether that's young people or adults, is, is, is a kind of misdirect from asking questions about why these things don't already exist or why these things did exist but no longer exist. And we know what the solutions are. The solutions are having employment opportunities within the proximity of where people live. You know, the answer is having educational opportunities within the proximity of where people live. You know, so we, we, we kind of know what, what the answers are. The issue is like why we're not able to deliver on that. Why do we not have small-scale, localised neighbourhood um, industry or making? Everything has moved towards a bigness um, and, a, and, a, and a kind of sense of safety and scale. And as a consequence, that, the, the opportunity feels kind of ever further away, I think, from, from everyone, but especially those who are um, not socially and economically marginalised. I think some young people, and myself included, are just... Um... We wouldn't be so wasteful. But yeah, growing up, it was all the, the, the estate that we live in now and all the blocks were connected. Um, there were sort of like pathways, like in the sky sort of thing, like little bridges or... So the whole estate was connected, so you could walk from one block to the other. I think it's pretty cool. So honestly, you'd be able to not have to get down the lift, walk around and go to the next block. You can literally walk, walk across. But in the late 90s, they were locking down all the pathways between the buildings. So all the buildings would be separate buildings and you wouldn't be able to walk between any buildings. Councils and organisers and developers are too in a hurry sometimes to get rid of things and build into new things. I've seen it very much firsthand being based in Glasgow over the last 20 years. You know how parts of an entire city can be knocked down and rebuilt like three or four or five times in the space of a, of a century. I, I, I'm not yet convinced that a kind of move towards greater neighbourhood consultation is actually going to result in a situation where the result of that consultation isn't also getting knocked down in 25, 30 years. And don't, don't get me wrong, change is needed. But I just, I, I miss, I don't know, I, I miss old buildings in, in terms of how they looked and, and the sort of the heritage that they had and what young people can do the way they think a bit more freely and with less constraints is they'll probably find a way to adapt that building to suit their needs or suit their purposes. Um, whereas developers probably come in with a... might not even consider keeping that building. They'll just think, this is what we want, we want a new building. We might be thinking we're designing really good spaces, but, but what's there around and in those spaces that young people feel that they can kind of engage with? Choice is really hugely linked to well-being. So if you have kind of choice and control and agency over what you can do, 
that gives you a real sense of, of, of feeling good about yourself. You can think about a space, whether it gives you kind of control and agency and choice over what you would like to be able to do there. There needs to be some space in your life where you feel you have control and agency over what you want to do there. And that has that's true for all of us, right? And if, the problem is that for young people, those spaces don't exist as much as they do for other age groups because for lots of different reasons, we haven't thought about what they might want to do there. And we also haven't really given them permission to be there quite often. There's signs telling them, you know, no ball games and don't do this and don't hang out. And there's benches that actually can only sit on in a row and actually quite clear messages to young people that, you, you know, that there are too many rules here. So just sort of move on. The buildings we have now and the architecture that we see today, some of it is great, but some of it is really boring. Some of it is just dull it's it's sad looking it doesn't you don't wake up on a monday morning and go into work and think oh what a cool building it doesn't remind you of your youth at all it just just another building another office space it's people sort of packed in and congested in a really tight space and and made to do a work basis it's adapting what we have like it's not always about knocking down and building new stuff like we have a lot of the stuff that we already need this is why I love the idea of having listed buildings and, and things that you can't change, that you literally can't touch. So I think our cities, at the end of kind of talking, working with young people, would have infinitely better public realm and public space, which works for people of every age. The lovely thing about working with young people is they're just brilliant connectors. So they draw different people into the conversation, you know, from different blocks and different streets and different generations. And... And we will find that we've got places which work much better for people of all ages, a much more human, much more creative space, um, and a more equal one. One of the things you find with working with young people on public realm design, they absolutely want to be in space, which is occupied by other adults, but not too close to them. Sit on the benches, for instance, and put the phone down, listen to some stuff and hang out without people kind of being all over them. Yeah, it, it sounds like they want to be near adults, but they want to do their own thing. What they don't want is the cage on the edge of the estate where you're kind of seen, not heard, and tucked away there to fulfil the Section 106 obligation. Uh, right now, it seems, in, in London at least, there's a lot of a lot of debate about roads and people having space to do uh, to cycle or to drive and so on. And I think one of the more curious kind of youth cultures that exists recently is like the bike storm, where you see... Um, whatever, you know, 50 to 100 kids on bicycles taking over a street. I think there's a bit of a moral panic about it and people are like, oh, it's anarchy. But on the other side, it's something beautiful. You know, it's young people cycling out. Cycling out. There's no difference really between that and a peloton uh, in the Surrey Downs, you know, middle-aged men on bicycles. So, you know, why, why are people jumping in and you know, making these distinctions? But is, is there a sense that some of these discussions could help with that, that transport issue? So, you know, hearing young people, what do they say about the roads? What do they want the roads to be like? We can't just be thinking about movement from A to B because, because young people are using space in a completely different way. They're not necessarily going anywhere. And that bike thing is a really good example because just being out and about on your bike is a really, like, is a really important part. It's a really fun part of being young. I, th- I think... The, the, the true power that young people have, if they do have it, is actually just through their own actions and their own activity as things stand. But now I kind of look back and think about a lot of the projects I've been asked to be involved in re- related to young people. It's because 
someone has identified that those young people should kind of have something to do somewhere where it won't annoy some other people. <laughs> so, you know, whether it's something as kind of banal as someone saying, right, we need a teen shelter because these teens are hanging out in front of some shops and annoying people. So so I think they do have kind of power through their own action, but obviously that in it, in its current form is is essentially a kind of disruptive form of power people start talking about what young people need and start talking to them when they start setting things on fire and kind of breaking stuff so maybe more young people going on on ride out bike storms is a form of direct action and if they just keep at it eventually london will just be forced to create better cycling infrastructure i'd certainly say that young people just being present in the physical space of our cities is already a form of action an action that doesn't get noticed but it does affect change. It does affect change in our cities, but often in a very, very roundabout way. Uh, maybe what I'd like to see instead is a more proactive process that can continually respond to the needs of the whole community. So clearly the planning process could be much better. And I can see how developers and councils could use the toolkit or, I don't know, similar tactics to better include young people in their process and um, how they'd probably get far better results if they did. But I don't know, it just feels like the built environment is so contested, it's so wrapped up with questions of climate change and inequality, and even COVID-19, that that even the best, most consulted, the most participatory planning process in the world couldn't address all the issues that face communities on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. Reforming the planning process, including more people in that process, it's all great, but it's not going to be the silver bullet. Part of the challenge of making the planning process better is being honest about its limits. So I'm, I'm not against um, an engagement with young people in, in, in the development process. I'm not against, you know, setting up ways in which useful conversations can be can be had. But I think, you know, the, the issues that are actually are causing the need for some kind of renewal are not because there wasn't a culture of community consultation in whatever in the 60s or the 70s, I don't think. I think it's because of a lack of maintenance. It's because of a 30, 40 year period of mass unemployment caused by the deindustrialization of the country. I think it's because things that have been broken haven't been fixed. I think it's because schools that used to be in these neighborhoods have been knocked down and the community centers that were built in these places have been knocked down and put somewhere else. The access to this amenity has started to, you know, become charged at the point of use or at the point of the door. You know, I think these these are larger issues which which have caused what we now identify as whatever urban decay, decline, sinker states, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, by saying that, right, what we now need to do is consult people is kind of suggesting that the fact that we didn't consult people before is why everything went to pot, you know, whereas it's just nowhere near the truth, you know, and and it's not helpful to kind of pretend it is uh, at all. So more honesty about what's not possible through consultation and then more creativity about what is. And that seems like a really clear mission statement for the future of this kind of work. I think all of our guests have had different experiences and different angles on this question of how young people can have a more meaningful role in shaping the urban environment. But it's clear that the system itself, as it stands, isn't really fit for purpose. So we do need this Grosvenor toolkit. We do need more architects like Lee and Dinah. And we need more young people like Hamza finding the few opportunities that do exist to change the system. Yeah, like young people need to have more of a say so that the system can change. But the system needs to change for more young people to have a say. I think the toolkit is a good first step. But I'd really say it's clear from the conversation. We're not talking about fiddling at the edges of the planning system. It's a bigger challenge, an exciting one. 
what we're really talking about is rebalancing who has power over the city. I think what young people have to face though, and what they need to go against is something that is, is a lot greater than they think it is. They have to undo decades, if not centuries, of, of policies that have been made to ignore young people, to ignore people from a BAME background, to ignore people who, who don't fit in the sort of normal ideals that maybe were back then of a white English man sort of thing. Um, and it's quite hard to change those institutions um, because even the people involved in them at the moment, they're sometimes institutionalised in the way they think. They've been sometimes conditioned to think in a certain way. They forget about these groups of people and young people in those groups they forget about. I think if, if developers haven't, if, if they haven't questioned, they, I think they need to question anyway, why they haven't worked with young people in the past. And developers need to be aware that when they come into people's estates and people's areas, people's homes, you're intruders in their life. This is their estate and this is their life that you're actually coming into and saying you're going to change. But the, the only way to actually see their faults is, is by understanding where they went wrong, essentially. It's if they can accept that maybe they haven't been too caring or too understanding of young people, or even if they come out and say we just didn't care at all, basically. Um, admitting their, their fault is, is the beginning, like with anything. Um, you need to understand where you went wrong. I'm trying to amend that and sort of correct that is, is, is the way forward. Find out more about the Youth Engagement Toolkit at opencity.org.uk forward slash podcast. Today's show was produced by Phineas Harper. Our staff includes Ruby Maynard-Smith, Zoe Cave, Merlin Fulcher, Ria Martin and Sean Milliner. Music today was by Chris Zabriskie and edited by Ed Ryman. The Open City podcast is made possible thanks to the support of donations from people like you. Go to opencity.org.uk forward slash support to support the show and the wider work of Open City. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.